All right, to our text. Drew showed us last week that the disciples had believed that Jesus was resurrected. And that's a little hard not to do when you're, in fact, talking to him. They believed, I think, that he was the promised Messiah. In short, I think they believed everything at that point Jesus told them. At this point, as I said, it would be pretty hard to deny, wouldn't it? At this point, they are convicted. And we don't see them make a false step. They simply obey Jesus from this point on. Now, some of you might be thinking, Sam, you're wrong. They take off and go fishing now. They, Peter, in disgrace, takes off and departs the mission. Well, I actually think Peter goes fishing by the command of Jesus. And so we'll have a little bit of a talk about that. I don't think that view is correct. It's good to know that fishing is not inherently wrong. Isn't that right, Richie? Um, So we're going to see that in the text this morning. The reality is they're not yet ready to do the work of becoming fishers of men. There's one more step they need to go through, which is, of course, the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost when they become truly born again. But we will see them take steps of obedience this morning. So, we're going to be looking at John 21, 1 through to 19 this morning, and I'm just going to do it piece by piece. So, John 21, 1 to 19, and we're going to start verses 1 to 3. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to his disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. He revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas called Twin, Nathaniel from Cana of Galilee, Zebedee's sons and two others of his disciples were together. I'm going fishing, Simon Peter said to them. We're coming with you, they told him. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Amen. So after all of the events of the previous chapter, the disciples have gone fishing on the Sea of Tiberias, which is otherwise known as the Sea of Galilee, which is based in Galilee. And there Peter decides to go fishing, and the other disciples join him. Now, you may have heard it said that this was Peter broken and and heading away and going back to what he knew. And this is often how it's kind of portrayed, but I don't think that's correct. In Mark 14, 28, I'm not going to pause here, you can look these up yourself later. In Mark 14, 28, Jesus tells them before he is crucified that when he is risen, he will go to Galilee. And then in Mark 16, 8, the angel that speaks to Mary, which Drew saw last week, brings a message for Mary to pass on to the disciples from Jesus, and the message is, Remind Peter that I'm going to Galilee. Where does Peter go in this story? Galilee, right? He's actually being obedient to the command of Christ. I mean, I just want you to pause and think about this for a moment, church. If Jesus, your Lord and Messiah, whom you had followed faithfully for three years, died, was resurrected, and then you got to meet with him 
face to face and you finally believed that he was the Messiah and his message for you was, go to Galilee, what would you do? Go to Galilee. So that's actually what we are reading here in the text. Why did Peter go fishing? Probably to get fish because they had to eat while they were waiting for Jesus at Galilee, right? Um, Now, don't get me wrong. I suspect that Peter had moments of deep introspection whilst fishing. There is no doubt that he was still wrestling, I think, with the guilt of having denied Christ three times. There's still a brokenness in Peter that's occurred during all of this, but that's not necessarily reflected in what we have just looked at. And there's no massive impact on the story by viewing it one way or the other. But I do think understanding that there was obedience in in response to the resurrected Christ makes more sense of the passage. So I think that is the better way to understand it. Anyway, Peter and the disciples go fishing and the story every fisherman knows is that sometimes you catch no fish. And of course, in this case, it is very reminiscent of a few years earlier on another occasion when they had a time with no fish. And that's what's meant to bring us back to that parallel, right? Back to the calling of the disciples. There was no fish, and here we are again. There is no fish. All right, continuing on our passage, John uh, 21, 4 to 8. When daybreak came, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not know it was Jesus. Friends, Jesus called to them, You don't have any fish, do you? No, they answered. Cast the net on the right side of the boat, he told them, and you'll find some. So they did, and they were unable to haul it in because of the large number of fish. The disciple, the one Jesus loved, said to Peter, It is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he tied his outer clothing around him, for he had taken it off, and plunged into the sea. Since they were not far from land, about a hundred yards away, the other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish. All right, so Jesus appears to them on the shore, perhaps too distant to really make out who it is, or maybe we have a kind of fog in that early morning, and Jesus says, you don't have any fish, do you? Cast on the right side, such a large number of fish, they can't haul it in. Now, a lot of people struggle with this part of the passage. Why didn't they realize it was Jesus? This event happened three years before. Surely, if someone says, cast on the right side, they should have instantly recognized Christ at that point. Well, not necessarily. If you talk to any fishermen in the church, of which there are quite a few, if you've been fishing for hours and hours, say, off the rocks, and you haven't caught a thing, and some local comes walking by and says, if you try it over there, nine times out of ten, you'll give it a shot. If you're catching nothing, you're, some local or some old guy will walk along and say, you know, what you're doing wrong is you haven't tried soaking bits of chicken in tuna oil, and you're like, next time I go fishing, I'll try it. You've got no idea whether it ever worked or not, but you'll give it a go, right? So if you're a fisherman, you're not catching fish, you'll pretty much give anything a shot. So all they hear, they've had a, a, 
fishless night and they hear someone yell out, hey, try over there. They're like, done, we'll give it a shot. So that is, makes perfect sense to anyone who is fishing. Anyway, they do it. And there is such a large number of fish that they struggle to haul it in. And at that point, John, way more reflective, way more introspective, way more thoughtful character, John says, it's the Lord. And Peter jumps out of the boat. Right? Isn't that just beautiful of these two right through the whole story that we've gone through? John declares, it is the Lord. Peter jumps in. Uh, What a wonderful depiction of these two. Now, why would you tie your outer garment on to go swimming? That's what our text says. Well, quite literally what the Greek words there say is that Peter was naked. And he probably thought naked was not the right appearance to meet with Jesus. Um, Now, again, it's reflective of the character, isn't it? Peter's that guy. that You've got a bunch of mates in a boat fishing and it's hot and one dude's just like, you know what, I'm stripping off. Everyone's like, really? And that's Peter, through and through, right? So that's what it... Now, maybe, our text doesn't tell us, maybe he had an undergarment on, maybe... But for whatever reason, Peter's like, no, definitely need something more on to meet Jesus. So he puts his outer coat on and swims into the shore. So uh, that's what we're up to. Now, all of this has just been setting the scene, obviously, to meet Jesus. So we've just been, this is all intro to meet Jesus. So let's pick up our text in 21, 9 to 14. John 21, 9 to 14. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire there with fish lying on it and bread. Bring some of the fish you've just caught, Jesus told them. So Simon Peter climbed up and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. Even though there was the net was not torn. Come and have breakfast, Jesus told them. None of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? because they knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread, and gave it to them. He did the same with the fish. This is the third time Jesus appeared to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. A long, tiring, and up to this point, entirely fruitless night fishing. No doubt hungry and cold, especially Peter after his swim, and Jesus has a cooked breakfast waiting for them. Don't miss that, church. Before Jesus died, he's willing to wash their feet. In the absolute humility of a servant, Christ is willing to wash the feet of those who follow him. And now the resurrected Lord, who has defeated sin and death, has prepared and cooked a meal for the disciples to come into after fishing all night. Don't miss the servant heart of God. Isn't that incredible? You you don't picture that, like resurrected Jesus. Surely that's different. No, the character of God doesn't change. He's servant-hearted. And here, the resurrected Lord has cooked breakfast for them. This is the humble heart of God that we are told in the Scriptures in Philippians, we are to have the same attitude of Jesus. 
right? The same humility, the same character of Jesus. That is to serve, not to be served. Mark Dever challenges the young men in his church. I like this. Listen up, young men. Listen up, older men. Mark Dever challenges the men in his church by saying, what is stopping you from being an elder in three years' time? So challenge, he says to the men in church, what is stopping you from being an elder in three years' time? It's a great question to ask yourself, isn't it? I would say for many young men who want to preach, who want to run studies, where's your heart, though, to serve? Where's a willingness to get in there and clean a toilet, cook a meal, tidy up after... Right? It's the character of Christ that then leads to being willing to be an elder. Now, we know that deacons were brought in in the Scriptures to free the elders up for prayer and the ministry of the Word. That's true. Elders need time for those things. But you want to see the character and heart of a servant before you become an elder. Right? So, can I challenge you? What's stopping you from being there in three years? Where is your heart? to get your hands dirty for the Lord, doing the jobs that other people don't want to do. Okay? That is the character of Christ. That's a challenge I would put before you, men. He is now cooking breakfast. By the way, Jesus says, get some of the fish. Remember that the disciples were struggling together to haul the net of fish onto the boat. We just read that Peter grabs the net of fish by himself and yoinks it off the boat, right? Peter, just get the picture of this man. He's a loud, brash, strong. He's something of a very confident fellow. Peter's the kind of guy, as we've seen right through the Scriptures, is very brash, very confident, and seemingly has good reason to be so. He's the kind of man that other men go, oh, that's a bit of the man I want to be, right? He's that kind of strong figure. So mark that. Men, you would all take note, wouldn't you? If six guys struggled to lift something and one man then came up and lifted it, wouldn't you all go, whoa, right? That's Peter. That's the figure he is. I just want us to pay attention to that because it's that brashness and self-confidence which has caused a lot of Peter's problems. His trust in himself. Anyway, we're going to see how that changes throughout our passage this morning. Now it's time to have a little bit of fun. There were 153 fish. Let's have a talk about that number 153. Jerome cites the naturalist, Opian, who he claims states that there are 153 different species of fish Thus, this catch of fish, affected by the risen Lord's command, becomes an acted parable of the fruitful mission of the church that draw all human beings without distinction. The only problem with that is, Oppian's list, if you count it, is 158, not 153. So I'm not sure if Jerome, when he was like doing this, just went, you know, we'll just fudge the figures here to make this work, but it, it just doesn't work. Or... Describing the effect of the stream from the temple, Ezekiel writes, 
There will be large numbers of fish because this water flows there and makes the salt water fresh. So where the river flows, everything will live. Fishermen will stand along the shore from Engedi to Enaglame. There will be places for spreading nets. Now each Hebrew and Greek letter stands for a number, so every Greek or Hebrew word has a numerical value. Based on the discipline called geometria, uh, has noted N is the word for spring, while Gedi yields the number 17, and Iglaim the number 153. Indeed, the two numbers are related. 153 is the triangular number of 17. Thus, the number represents the places where in the time of fulfillment of messianic hopes, gospel fishermen are to spread their nets. Perfectly clear? Let me give you a couple more. Seven equal, 17 equals 10 plus 7. 10 representing the Ten Commandments, and 7, the sevenfold spirit of God in Revelation. Others break seven down to three plus four, the number of the Trinity and the number of the New Jerusalem, a city built four square. Other, I'm not going to continue. Let me give you one more. It's 153 because there was 153 fish, right? That's the truth of the matter. And I only bring this up because I've had to endure over the years so many ridiculous notions of what the 153 represents it's 153 because they caught 153 fish. Why would they count them, you ask? Come on, I've said this already. Have you ever met a fisherman? It says there was 153 large fish. Church, if you come out and have lunch at my house, I've got my dedicated kind of outdoor blokey area, and there's a digital photo frame. It only shows photos of fish that I've caught. It's a dedicated fishing photo frame, right? And you ask me if they would have counted these fish? I mean, come on. 153 large fish? That's amazing. Anyway, if there's any symbolism here in the passage, it probably comes because what John says quite clearly is, and yet the net wasn't torn. If we go back to Luke 5, and this is meant to be reminiscent of that first occasion when the disciples were called, they got a large haul of fish that was tearing the nets. And here we are at the resurrection of Christ where he is now commissioning. Back then he said, I will make you fishers of men. Now he's actually beginning the commissioning of them becoming fishers of men and the net is not torn. There's a little allusion there to say that when the gospel is spread to the harvest of men that God is going to bring in, the gospel won't be torn. It will bring in the number of fish it's meant to, right? So you get a little illustration, perhaps, that the, net, the gospel net won't be torn. It'll bring them in from all around the nations. And that's probably about as deep as we can go. Our passage then has a weird little piece at first glance. Come and have breakfast, Jesus tells them. They are invited directly by Jesus, but there is some hesitancy. John says that none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you, because they knew it was the Lord. That's a weird statement, isn't it? Like, you know, I'm not going to ask Beth who she is because I know it's Beth. Doesn't that feel like a weird statement? So we actually have to cast our mind back a little bit to make it plausible. We have to go back and picture ourselves living in that period of time. Jesus had appeared resurrected to them after their grief. 
seemingly he had gone through a locked door, a wall, and appeared before them. He has a, a new body that confounds our understanding of current physical law. And then you're startled by Jesus on a beach cooking breakfast. Don't you think it's at least a little plausible that you would feel uneasy? I mean, they know it's Jesus because who else could it be? But so many questions. I mean, is it even right to sit on the beach and eat brekkie prepared by the risen Savior? Lord, is it really you? Stupid question, I can't ask him that. I know it's him. Who else could it be? But the whole situation is so overwhelming, so stunning. Everything they've just gone through, that you're now sitting on a beach to eat brekkie prepared by the risen Savior. Lord, is it truly you? But who else could it be? That's the heart. Doesn't that make sense? Wouldn't you find that whole situation so, I don't know, so difficult? You get my drift, I think. These are men who are incredibly joyous at the resurrection of Jesus and at the same time deeply wrestling with it all. To finish this little piece, John mentions that it is the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples, which is probably referring to in this gospel. All right, let's get to the crux. John 21, 15 to 17. John 21, 15 to 17. When they had eaten breakfast... Jesus asked Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said to him, you know that I love you. Feed my lambs, he told him. A second time he asked him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Yes, Lord, he said to him, you know that I love you. Shepherd my sheep. He told him. He asked him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved that he asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Feed my sheep, Jesus said. Here we are, right at the pivotal point of this passage. When they finish eating, Jesus addresses Peter right beside the other disciples. This is a public meeting. It's one they need to hear. And Peter says, uh, Jesus says to Peter, do you love me more than these? Who are the these, the other disciples? Jesus says to Peter, do you love me more than these, referring to the other disciples? Now remember, that's why I was making a point of this earlier. Peter, loud, brash, strong, physically imposing, self-confident, bold in who he is. Peter, who said, I will not deny you, I will follow you to Jerusalem, even to death. Peter, who had whipped out a sword and cut off Malchus' ear. Peter, bold and strong, as I said, the unofficial leader of the disciples. With every reason, to be confident in his own strength. Like some of you here today, smart, strong, whatever it might be, every reason successful to feel confident in yourself. 
same Peter who denied Jesus three times. There is strength to Peter. There is bravery to Peter. But his self-reliance, self-focus, is what leads to his undoing. Peter is like a typical self-made man, confident through winning battles, confident through achievements, that at the critical moment had failed Jesus. And Jesus is about to drive home to Peter that it was never about him, but it was always about Christ. Peter, do you love me more than these? See, this was the heart of Peter. I'm a better disciple than these. I love you more than these. I'm stronger more than these. I'll follow you to Jerusalem more than these. This was Peter. How will Peter respond? Gone are the comparisons. Gone are the bold statements. His answer is not in comparison to the other disciples. It is simply a statement of truth. Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Now, there is a threefold repetition of the question. And the first thing that I want to say about it is this. The Greek words for love that are used here are not significant. And you may have heard this taught differently many times. You may have heard that the first two times Jesus uses the Greek word agape, which some people will tell you is a sacrificial love. And the third time he uses the word philia, which is more of a friend kind of love. And the argument is that's why Peter is so hurt, because Jesus questions him on deep sacrificial love. And the third time, he questions him, do you even love me as a friend? Now, it sounds great, but it doesn't work. And the reason it doesn't work is these words are used interchangeably in John's Gospel. Both words are used for the beloved disciple. Both are used for God's love of the Son. But here's something a little bit different. Both words are used in the Old Testament for Amnon about Tamar. I'm not going to spell that one out for you, but if you're familiar with that story, that should pick you up a little bit. It's also used of Demas, who walked out on Paul out of love for this world. Agape is used. The deep sacrificial love of God for this world? No. It's just used very interchangeably in John's Gospel. Now, Peter's hurt comes from the fact that Jesus asks him three times, once for each of Peter's denials of Jesus. The pain and grief that this brings to Peter must have cut to the heart. And at this moment, he's got nothing else, nothing left to offer, but to say, Lord, you know everything. You know, I think what Peter is saying there is, Lord, you know that I denied you three times. You know that I chose comfort over obedience, life over death, the world over you. Lord, you know everything and you know that I am a worthless, 
broken, unfaithful man. But you do know that I love you. See, I think this is what Peter is reduced to at this moment. And it's exactly where Jesus wants him to be. The Peter who trusted in himself is now the Peter who is on his way to serving Jesus faithfully because he now trusts Christ and not himself. From Moses being broken and serving the Lord as a shepherd from, for 40 years until he was ready, to Paul being struck blind and serving unknown in his hometown for 14 years, these men were humbled and taught to rely on God. Where are you at this morning? Confident in your strength, your intelligence, your achievements? You need to be confident in the Lord. After Peter's acknowledgement, Jesus says, Feed my sheep. Whose sheep? Jesus' sheep. Peter is Christ's servant. And now in broken humility, he is ready to fulfill the task that Christ gives him. All of this has done a couple of things. Primarily, it's brought Peter back to Jesus, reinstated him as a disciple, but in humility now. Secondly, it's been done publicly. Other disciples now know that Peter is reinstated and even again will take on that de facto kind of leadership role, but he is a changed man. I want to read to you quickly from 1 Peter 5, 1 to 4, and this is Peter. Think about who Peter was and his attitude. I want you to hear now how Peter speaks about being an elder in the church. 1 Peter 5, 1 to 4. I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and witness to the sufferings of Christ, as well as one who shares in the glory about to be revealed. Shepherd God's flock among you, not overseeing out of compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not out of greed for money, but eagerly, not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Not, not overseeing out of compulsion, not lording it over them. Right? God has wrought a change in Peter's heart that we all need. Such is the grace of God that molds and shapes our heart, but there is more for Peter to grasp for you and I. So let's read John 21, 18 to 19 to finish our passage. John 21, 18 to 19. Truly I tell you, when you were younger, you would tie your belt and walk wherever you wanted. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will tie you and carry you where you do not want to go. He said this to indicate by what kind of death Peter would glorify God. After saying this, he told them, follow me. Jesus now tells Peter he will be crucified. If you remember, I mentioned back at the crucifixion passage of Jesus that they would tie your hands to the cross piece. They would lead you then 
to Golgotha, the hill of the cross. They would then nail you to the cross piece. The vertical column was already set in the ground and they would use ropes and hoist you up onto it. So here in our passage, we are told that someone will stretch out your hands. That, at the time, was known as a reference to crucifixion. They will stretch out your hands, tie you to the cross piece, and lead you where you do not want to go. That is a clear, basically what Jesus said is, they will crucify you, Peter. Peter lived a little over 30 years after this meeting on the beach, all with the knowledge that crucifixion was coming at some point. That's a burden to carry, isn't it? All with the knowledge that crucifixion was coming at some point. How would that make you feel? Tell you what, if God has crucifixion coming for me, I'd prefer not to know. Peter lived in the humility of knowing it was coming. Jesus then ends with, follow me. In this part we learn they now begin a little walk down the beach and that John will get up and follow. But it's also Jesus restating Peter's initial call, come, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. What is Jesus' word now? Peter, they are going to crucify you, come, follow me. How's that for a call, church? There's a wonderful way to get disciples, isn't it? There's an altar call to be popular at a church. Hey, you're going to get crucified. Come follow me. That's exactly what Jesus says to Peter. Oh, I'm so glad he doesn't say that to us, right? So glad Luke 9.23 is not in my Bible. Then he said to them all, if anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. Your call is Peter's call. Peter lived with that knowledge for 30 years. You live with that knowledge. Daily, take up your cross and follow me. You don't have a physical promise that you will die by crucifixion, but you have a spiritual call to die by crucifixion to this life every day. What does that mean? It means that every day we must crucify the world and its desires. The things that draw you away from Christ, the things that draw you away from church. Take up your cross and follow me. Peter denied Jesus because he loved his life more than he loved Jesus. What is it that you love that leads you to deny Christ? Is it popularity? And so you hide your faith and deny Jesus. Is it comfort? And so you claim, oh, I just wouldn't know what to say. And so you won't speak about Christ and deny Jesus. Is it laziness? It would just just be too difficult to honour Christ in this part of my life and so deny Jesus. Is it pride? I'm all about my career 
and so deny Jesus. Whatever it is, your popularity, your comfort, your laziness, your pride. To love Jesus means to take up your cross and follow him. We are saved by grace, but we are called to deny self. And this is the Christian life that you have committed to following. The call on Peter is the call on you. Take up your cross and follow me. Church, what is it that you are loving that leads to your denial of Christ? Jesus would say, if you love me more than these, take up your cross and follow me. Crucify the world and its desires and put your faith in Christ. Church, we've talked about it all morning. We talked about it in communion. We are saved by grace. Hallelujah. You'll never be saved by works. But you are called to works to take up your cross and walk after Christ. What is it that you love that's taken the place of Christ. Crucify him and follow him. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the challenge of your word. Lord, the reason we can face such a challenge, the reason we can face it head on, is because we are saved by grace, by the death and resurrection of Jesus. Lord, because of grace, because of unmerited favor, we should be willing to admit our faults and our weaknesses because they won't separate us from Christ. But Lord, nor are we meant to walk in our failures and weaknesses. You've called us to deny our flesh, deny the world and its desires, to take up our cross and follow you. Lord, I pray for myself, I pray for this church. Whatever it is we love that's leading us to live a life of denial of Christ, Lord, may we crucify it. Take up our cross and walk in obedience to Jesus. Lord, I pray that you would challenge each of us to a deeper walk with you. I pray that in your precious name. Amen.